Hi, you're listening to the Raise the Vibe with Liz podcast. I'm your host, Liz Peterson. I interview today's inspirational speakers and healers. Thank you for listening to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Raise the Vibe with Liz. I'm your host, Liz Peterson. Thank you so much for sharing this time with me today. Here in Washington, over the last few weeks, we're starting to shift out of quarantine now, and some counties have moved into phase two. The tragic video of George Floyd being murdered was released, and people have gone to the streets in outrage with marches, rioting, demanding justice for George Floyd, his family, and reform from police. Today, I'm honored to have Jamie Wolf with me discussing the neurology behind the violence, systemic racism, and more. Jamie is a meta coach and teacher, professional public speaker and live event facilitator, certified life mastery consultant for individuals and families, certified professional behaviors analyst, and certified professional driving forces analyst, and founder of Tribe 525. Jamie, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you, Liz. I'm really honored uh, to be here today. And thank you so much. I really appreciate everything you do for our community and the world at large and as a mother and a human being. Thank you. And you. So let's start by you sharing a little bit about who you are, because I really believe our experiences really move us to our path and purpose in life. So why don't you go ahead and share a little bit about your background with us? Well, I think, you know, it's really relevant because what's happening today in the world and is exploding is we're looking at ethnicities and black lives and human lives. Um, So there's so much of that going on. And what we know is that it's really about intersectionality. And this idea of that I'm not just one thing. So all those things you just read, yes, I had a career in law enforcement and now I'm a trainer in law enforcement. That's a piece of my intersectionality. But it informs who I am in a bigger way. So one of the important and key, key pieces, and it's kind of we talk about this like unpacking our, our, our background in terms of where do we come up with our biases, both good and bad, our thoughts, our preferences, who we love, who we don't love, all those kinds of things. And a, an important piece for me is that I come from a family that's eight generations in this country. And so um, I am a person of mixed ethnicity. And it's very important for me to say that I walk with white privilege. So um, I don't claim any of those things because it's really important that the way that I'm seen in the world is this way. But that is a part of my intersectionality. My family comes from Mobile, Alabama. Uh, As most people know in this country, Mobile was the hub and the last place to stop the slave trade uh, in this country. Uh, My my relatives owned slaves and were slaves. And so this informs me as a human being in really big and profound ways. Now, growing up and being around an environment where um, there was just overt racism spoken in the house and also being loved by a person if you uh, if people ever take my classes they hear me talk about dot and the influence she had on my life um, in terms of my resiliency factors and she was a beautiful african-american woman who really mothered me in many ways and this influenced who i was 
my father became a race relations officer for the United States military and developed the curriculum under Nixon for um, educating officers in the military around uh, racism and integration. And he did this at a time that was really an interesting time. Um, and he did the right thing and was not rewarded by the military, actually suffered in his career because he did the right thing. So this informs me as a leader uh, that I'm a person who's willing to take risks and who tries, is always striving. I certainly miss the mark, but always striving to do what's right for me. And we're in an interesting time right now where what's right for one person isn't right for another person. And we rely on our intersectionality, all those pieces of ourselves that we pull together to look through the lens at what's happening presently. I'm going to tell you a story that was a story that really informed me at a very young age about the difference between how I walked in the world and how black people, and I'm specifically saying black people because that's what this was about, walk in the world. I was a little bitty kid and I was home alone one day and I was um, making a sandwich and outside and in Alabama, it gets very hot and it was about a thousand, um, what do you, what do you call it when it, when you're super sweaty? The, it was wet, like hot and wet. Humid. And humid thank you. And there, um, a gentleman who mowed my family's lawn and tended the gardens and his name was James and he was an older man. I'm sorry. I don't know his name. Um, and so I was looking at James through the window and I did what any little kid I think would do who had any kind of empathy stirring in them, but I was making myself a peanut butter jelly sandwich. So I made him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a big glass of milk. And I went outside and sat on the cement stoop and I put our glasses of milk down. And it, to me, it was just this, this is going to be great. I'm going to get to have lunch with Mr. James. And so we sat and uh, I mean, I set him down and then I got the sandwiches and I was looking at him and I started to notice, you know, Liz, our communication is 7% words. Yeah. And I started to notice that he was really uncomfortable and that he was grabbing the lawnmower and that he was already sweating, but he wasn't looking at me. And as I unpack this story as an adult who understands the intricacies of privilege and power, I know what was happening, but I didn't know this as a child. We've just seen an incident or heard about, most people in the United States of America have heard about the woman who um, called the police and threatened the African-American man because he asked her to put her dog away. And she used her white privilege and power to threaten him. And what was happening in this little exchange between James and I that wasn't happening because he wouldn't even look at me. Always a friendly man. But right now, I was actually threatening his life, Liz. Yeah. And, and how could I know that? Because he can't sit and have lunch with a little white girl. That can't happen. And these stories of black men sexually assaulting white women and children and black men being charged with and, and um, actually losing their lives in many various horrific ways around this thing. How could I know that? Yeah. So I said to him, finally, Mr. James, I made you a sandwich. Are you, would you come and sit down and have lunch with me? And he looked at me and he said, child, you are going to get me killed please take that back in the house. And don't you ever mention this, ever. Wow. So I, I did what he said. You know, something inside of me knew. 
at the time, but of course I couldn't understand. And I never said a word to anyone. And years later, Dot, the same woman and I were standing and she used to sit, she was a very, very large woman and she would sit with her hands on the washer and dryer and look outside and say, <sighs> and she would teach me these life lessons. And she said, do you remember that day, child, that you took Mr. James that sandwich? And I said, Dot, we're not supposed to speak of that. And she said, don't you ever, but I want to tell you, you did the right thing. And it's so interesting, you know, with just a few words, how much this impacted me that I got, I had the privilege of a lifetime to see through the eyes of an African-American man and what it would feel like that it's not okay. I can tell the story today without getting tearful after many years, but just putting myself in Mr. James' shoes for a moment, I'll never forget him and I'll never forget this peace. And we talk a lot in nonviolent communication in BC about our impact and our intention. And it's probably the most important thing that we can talk about right now in present day time. Yeah. What is my impact? What am I intending to do? My intention as a little child was good and beautiful. The impact could have cost this man his life had someone seen this and reported it. Right. So I don't know if that's helpful. There's a lot more to that. We lived all over the world. My father, uh, we traveled and moved about 21 times. My family were fundamentalist Christians. We traveled all over Israel um, and got to see many cultures. My parents were both interested in cultures and they learned about diversity and they teach us about people. And so I really saw the world living in other places through a different lens. I'm glad that we moved away from Mobile. I would have been a, I might've been a very different person. Who knows? Um, and in terms of diversity, if you look at me, right, I would have had a really hard time in Mobile. So um, I'm grateful to my parents for that piece. And that's an important part of my intersectionality, for sure. So thank you for asking. That's my kind of the story that gets me here in terms of, of, of current times and how the lens through which I look at African-Americans, having witnessed and been witnessed to let me, let me just add one more thing, Liz, that's important. My mother was raised by a slave. I should have brought her picture um, so that you could see this woman. Her name was Louise. And, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation happened a very long time before my mother was born. And my great-grandmother, and this is an example of, and for folks out there who have a hard time hearing about white privilege, here's what that looks like. They wanted to go, there was a different term for it, to go get a black child. You can fill in the blanks. There was a whole thing around this. And so she went across the tracks and walked into a woman's home that she knew and said, we're taking Louise. And the mother could do nothing. She packed her clothes and Louise went with them and she would never, ever see her family again. She lived in a tiny little room above the garage in my family's um, on the family property on Spring Hill Avenue in Mobile, Alabama. And if you can imagine, there was no cool air. There was no air conditioner. She had a tiny window and what we called a piss pot, not even running water or a bathroom. And she lived her whole life serving and raising the children of my family. And Liz, before we talk about all this other stuff, I just want to say this one thing mm -hmm. to the listeners. Until white people are willing to acknowledge what we've done 
I didn't do that. My, my ancestors did that, and they're dead. But I am happy to say I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for any of that that I've ever perpetrated, any times where I didn't stand up. I'm so horrified that this woman, Louise, that I have one picture of that doesn't even have a last name, that my mother finally looked at the picture when I was younger and I kept saying, tell me about Louise, tell me about Louise. And she told me the story and she said, we gave her a good life. And I remember looking at her saying, you kidnapped her. You stole her from her family. And so when, when we talk about systems of oppression and privilege, it wasn't until I said that, that my mother, and God bless her, she snapped too and began sobbing and said, I, my God, I've never thought of it that way, right? Because when we're immersed in these systems, we don't even see what's right in front of our eyes. And I'm no hero here. I could have been my mother and not seen it because it was what was normal. And she looked at the picture of Louise and she said, you know, I never saw her smile. And is it any wonder? Wow. Now, this is an ugly story, but it gets uglier because when Louise got old, they put her into what was called then a Negro home for the old. They threw her away. And she died in that home. And her relatives, actually, now think about this, came to my family's house and gave them hell. But this isn't treating Louise as a human being. It's treating her as a commodity, a thing. It's called dehumanization. They don't even see you as a human. So when we think about what's happening now, it's important for us to think about what are the lenses through which I've looked in my life? And, and how do I see people? How do I see them? So today when I see Carmen Best, the chief of police of Seattle, speaking her truth last night, I listened first on NPR and then went and looked it up about how she's really struggling right now and having a hard time. And she's so articulate, this powerful African-American woman who stands up in front of the press and says, I've suffered microaggressions. It's this bizarre mix of how can this be happening right now? And I think what's happening for many Americans is we're having collective cognitive dissonance. Like it was in the 60s when we were doing this, and now we're doing it again. And the ugly snake has, has raised his head again for us to see. And it's, it's really an important key time, I, I think, for people to have self-awareness about who am I, what's informed me. And so this is an import, important question that you've asked me. Um, you know, and I'd be curious sometime... If, uh, if you want to share, me the, share with me the lenses that you see this stuff through, and I also know you don't like getting put on the spot, but sometime I'd be, I'd be really, really interested to hear that. Thank you, Jamie. Mm -hmm. As an empath, I see what's you know, happening in the world, all of the anger, the lack of safety, and the reflection even on a micro level in my own life with lack of boundaries and safety and anger and those sorts of things. And then it reflecting in the outside world as an empath feeling all of that. Mm -hmm. And then reflecting on my childhood growing up in Cambridge, Maryland, 
small town, diverse, um, a window into Cambridge was the last town in Maryland to stop segregation. Mm. Um, my sisters, my sib older siblings saw more um, racism than I did. Although as a young child, I saw it and I didn't understand it, you know, similar to the stories, you know, um, had many black men and women and children in my life that I loved my bus driver who took care of me because I was super shy. So he always made sure I sat behind him and was well taken care of and nicknamed me cupcake. <laughs> I adored him. <laughs> um, my cheerleading coach in 11th grade, Mr. Dilber was fantastic. Um, and also my counselor, um, my sewing teacher where I was, you know, the only white young woman in the class. I adored and she encouraged me and I loved all of the young women in the class. Um, so yes, I did get to see um, a fair amount of racism, but um, not as much as my brothers and sisters experienced or my parents. I always, even as a young child, didn't understand, you know, because of that white privilege, you know, on many levels. And one of the reasons why I left Cambridge, you know, right after graduation, I saved money and went out to the West Coast, you know, in search of open minds and open hearts. So I really feel like I want to stand in whatever way that I can during these times to know that, to let people know Black Lives Matter, Black men matter, Black women matter, Black children matter. I really believe, um, oh gosh, what is her name? The woman, um, people have been speaking with her and interviewing her and she did the um, thing with children. She was a school teacher, she's an author, um, gosh. I'm not remembering right now. I apologize. It'll come to you. Yeah. But I want to be a person who learns, who unlearns, and who helps people do the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be a fighting force for Black and Brown men, women, and children who need, you know, who need us to change. Mm -hmm. We need the world to change. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it's um, thank you for sharing that. I love that so much. And it's not enough for us to change. I was watching this beautiful video this morning of this, um, this gentleman. And he was talking about, it was actually a beautiful, he was doing this thing in NVC that we call, um, Oh gosh, a necessary use of force in essence. Mm -hmm. And and so it was a scene between three African American men, one was older and uh, the the man uh the original man was telling a young man, 18 a 19 year old African American man, let's go in there and let's risk our lives. And this man came in and said, "Stop." And he was screaming, but it was this the most beautiful things he was saying to him. You know, in your generation we didn't fix it. 
In my generation, we didn't fix it. He's 19 years old. We have to do something different. And, and he looked at the, the young man and he took his face and he said, don't go in there and risk your life. You have to figure this out. And it was so gorgeous. But then they interviewed him. And what he said is that we're tired of repeating the cycle in history. Yeah, and what, yeah. has, what has to happen is that white people have to step up and start talking about systematic change because we can't do that thing. It's, it's long overdue. And speaking the truth and acknowledging what's happened, and this is really where the healing begins. You know, we know where other countries have done these kinds of reparations. And the first point is, Yes, let's talk about our indigenous peoples in the United States. We murdered hundreds of thousands of you. It happened. Let's quit saying like these things didn't happen or that was a long time ago. It's not true. George Floyd was more George Floyd was murdered a few days ago violently. Yes. In plain public right there. And nobody so, walked by and said a word. The three well, for, officers. The three officers yeah. And he was just given a million dollar bail. It's so interesting, that officer. Um, and as a, a former use of force expert for a department and having written a use of force policy, it, it was the most disgusting thing I have ever seen next to Rodney King. Yeah. The beating of Rodney King. It was disgusting. He was looking down and moving his knee over the man's neck as people stood there and did nothing. And this, go ahead. It was heartbreaking. I yes. And, and this is the message, you know, to people is that we have to stop this now. We have to have the courage to intervene. And one of the things that happens, Liz, is when it's happening to African-Americans or black or brown people or LGBT people or women, minorities, whatever, abused women, people will look at them and say, why don't you do something? Why don't you say something? And here, please listen to this, people, if you're listening here. I, I just invite you. We're the ones, the person with the most power in the room is the person who needs to speak. Not look to the minority and say, well, what are you going to say to that? We have to have the courage to step in and speak up and say this is not okay. And not look to the oppressed group and ask them to do it. Right. So that's our work. And most white folks are like, hey, you know, I'm cool. I went out there and I held a sign and I'm going to go home and have a cupcake. No. No, this you is have to do the real work because yes. there's an element of fear mm -hmm. happening. You know, I'm speaking from a woman's perspective who at night, if I get pulled over by a police officer, is scared, mm -hmm. especially if it's a desolate road, right? So I can only imagine someone put in the situation where they were given a choice as a minority, whether to speak up or not that fear might not allow the courage to step in, to be able to step forward because they're putting their lives at risk. Well, and literally, and I, I just want to say to you, I'm sorry that you have that fear. I mean, this is the thing that's happening in law enforcement all around me. A department called me today and said, we want to have these sessions, Jamie, because we're suffering so much. We spent our entire careers being kind and generous and working with people and watching this happen personally to to us as people of color and then seeing the outrage as i was walking in today to come in here and do this interview i ran into someone who said to me um 
what is it you do again? And I said, I work with law enforcement. I have a private business where I work with private citizens and do coaching on individuals to individuals. But she said, so you work with the oppressor. And it just, it, it, it hits like a ton of bricks. You know, um, we see these things that happen as law enforcement and, and it's, it's so sad because it's like, there's bad doctors, there's bad dentists, there's bad lawyers, there's bad mothers, there's bad attorneys, there's bad every, in every group of people. So when we start dehumanizing entire groups of people, and interestingly, this woman was a minority person, and I didn't respond because I just said, have a nice day. (laughs) But I wouldn't say all blank, fill in the blank of what she is, are bad people. That would be atrocious to say. So when we start separating ourselves from entire groups of people, we're not going to be successful in, and I don't even want to say rebuilding, in building something new. It's really important that we do that. How do we start, you know, building something new? I almost slipped and said restructuring. So how do we build that something new? So it's a, it's a big we question. try to dissolve the systematic racism and yeah, it's it's a really it's a really big um, a big question. Yeah, uh, and we just to kind of for people who don't know in Minneapolis today, actually yesterday, they voted to approve dismantling their entire police department and rebuilding it. Now, as a law enforcement, former law enforcement professional and someone who works with law enforcement, I, this seems um, really dramatic to me and very scary. And they're talking about having um, community reformers come in and community groups come in and do policing. And so I get, that 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 is what is their intention their intention is to fix this the impact may be really bad um and something needs to be done so what needs what needs to be done in terms of these things and From you know perspective it feels rushed and reaching like everybody's in fear and functioning from their amygdala and right on harsh decisions without thinking clearly. Yes. Without and then, pressing the pause button. Well, and the other thing that happens, Liz, that we that most people don't understand is that when when I've been systematically oppressed for many, many years, I have a need, a deep need for empathy and to be seen and understood. And so rather than sharing our stories with people, or if we've tried to share our stories and no one hears my story, they don't get it. And the things just keep on happening over and over again. I, I get this, 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 my unmet needs become chronic and people with chronic unmet needs become dangerous. We see them all around us for various reasons because at some point there's going to be a breaking point and that's what we're seeing right now. So what happens is very interesting, Liz, and, and we've all experienced this. The person will have so many unmet needs, it's so chronic, that they'll want you to feel their pain with you. Have you ever known someone like that? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to do something to you so that you're going to feel the pain that I'm feeling Teenage right now. Two-year-olds do the same thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Take that. Because it's, they, don't, they, they don't know how to ask for what they need or... They don't have the power to get their needs met in a healthy way, or they've just been so oppressed over the years, they're over it. 
So we're seeing that now. And I heard a statistic, don't quote me on this, but I think they're talking about taking $100 million. Is that some astronomical amount of money away from Seattle PD? Um, And, you know, that would hurt. And it would have some pretty catastrophic effects. And it's ignoring all the good work that law enforcement does. And again, I invite everybody to watch uh, Carmen Bess. She just, it was just, uh, just yesterday. So you can type in Carmen Best. No. Yeah. Carmen Best last night (laughs) and it'll come right up. And um, she says, our job is protecting people's rights to free speech. That's our job. And we're doing our best with that. And we need systematic change in the criminal justice system. And we are, we need to be able to have these uh, crucial conversations and look at and review our things and be allies to, uh, to other people. And so what are we going to do about that? And she, she says, me, I think it's called meeting peace with peace or something. And it's really beautiful because here's an African-American woman saying, I've given 30 something years of my life to this profession. And now people are accusing me, right? And that's what's happening, right? That's what happens when we reach this point is people start dehumanizing each other. And we're at a critical point right here, Liz. I couldn't be happier to be here today because we have to remember that I'm talking to a specific person who comes with all of their beautiful um, diversity and life experiences and clumping a whole group of people into one thing has gotten us where we are. Yeah. That's why black men get murdered in the street because all black men are the same. Quote unquote. So let's not start doing that with the police or with each other or anyone else and slow our roll and back up. The moment I stop seeing you as a human, Hitler used this tactic. The moment I stop seeing you as a human, I can harm you. So, you know, we're having some flashpoints and some really big things that are happening. And if we can just slow down and remember who I'm talking to and recognize what's happening in our central nervous system, which is just on overload all the time. All around. And especially Mm -hmm. after a pandemic. Yes. Mm -hmm. So what would you say needs to have the neuroscience behind why someone would murder George Floyd and what we can do to retrain emotional intelligence into our police force. Yeah, it's it's another it's another big question and it's it's a, it's a big question and it's a great question, right? So what I want to say, the first thing that we can do is as average human beings. So people say this to me a lot. Gosh, Jamie, you know, I don't know what to do. So here's just some easy things you can do. You can pick up the phone and call your friends of color and say, I don't know what to say. I can't imagine what you're going through. And I just want you to know that I'm here as an ear. Now, be prepared because your only job in that conversation is to say things like, oh my gosh, that's so painful. I'm so sorry. I had no idea. Would you be willing to tell me more? 
and creating sacred space for people to express what's happening for them is the most beautiful form of connection between two human beings. And so it's an easy step, not easy, it's simple, but it's not easy, that people can take right now. And if you are afraid, I wouldn't know what to say. Your job is to not say anything, actually. Yeah. Your job is just to listen and offer empathetic statements. Would you tell me more? Wow, I'm so sorry, right? I have like 10 taglines that are there. And as an example, I called my friend the other day who is a former chief, um, an African-American woman. She served 30 years for a department in the sheriff's department, was uh, promoted very high, and then went on to be a, a probation chief of a department in California. And she's a personal friend of mine and someone that I dearly admire as a human being. In her retirement, she's become um, an ordained minister, and she's just delicious as a human being. So I was sitting at home thinking, what can I do? What can I do right now? And she said, um, what you could do right now is listen to me. And so I called her and I just, I just listened. And she told me all about her, um, her feelings around her process of her grief and grieving and seeing what's happening. And she had spent collectively like some like 40 years in law enforcement and and her boss was this really forward-thinking man and had trained her and taught her, and it was so rich. And then this happens, and she feels demoralized because she has sons who are African-American. And she said, you know, Jamie, I used to be able to tell them, well, just don't dress like that, or don't wear that, or put your hands on the steering wheel when you get pulled over, or whatever. But you know what? After seeing the George Floyd murder, there's nothing I can tell my sons. Yeah. So I want to share with people, being a witness to that for our friends and listening, you don't have to say anything. Just love them. You can't fix it. You can't make it better. There really is not the right thing to say. But our precious presence, and that's the first step of healing uh, and listening to that. That was a conversation that's really been a, a profoundly effective, um, profoundly affected my life again, right? And my big circle of experiences. Yeah. Listening to her. So how do we change things? We start by changing ourselves and by looking at what is all the nonsense in my mind that I need to take a really brave look at. What can I do in this moment to change things up and really look at how I walk in the world? What are the things that I take for granted? How can I help people? So I've made a several phone calls in our community here to people and said, I have some business. I'm in town. I have a new business now. I'm all online. I'm not traveling. And I need someone to do this. I'm guessing you're hurting right now financially. So I have the privilege of having income. So I'm going to share that income. These are just little things that we can do, right? Right. To, to support people to create systemic change in the moment that I can do. I can be friendly in the grocery store. I can say hello. I can be loving and kind. And, and that's, those are the first steps. But what do we do with our law enforcement agencies? And, you know, I, I, I want to say it's obviously our law enforcement agencies are reflective of the, the larger systemic prejudices that we have as a country that still remain. And we're seeing those 
um, at the national level and internationally today I saw the taking down of a a statue of a slave trader um, in another country who was a celebrated person and people tore it down. So this is the right. ripple effects. This is a tsunami that's happening. Yeah. yeah. So what do we do? We show up and we stay for the long haul and we have the hard conversations. And when someone says in front of us a, a snide comment about Black Lives Matters, we stop the conversation and say, I'm going to ask you to think about I'm guessing you said that because you feel uncomfortable or you thought it might be funny, but it's not okay with me. And we stand up and start to intervene. We actually start to put our bodies emotionally in the path of violence that is directed towards African-Americans in this country to change things up. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So having those, those crucial conversations and, um, you know, so this is, you know, when you talk about restructuring law enforcement agencies, a friend of mine said to me the other day, that great Diane Booth, I love her. She's so brilliant. It's like someone took a bucket of rocks and each one of these rocks represents something different and threw it in the air. Cause I, I love, she's so brilliant. I said, Diane, explain to me what's going on right now. What, in, your, in your point of view, because she sees the world through a very different lens than I see it. And she said, number one, we have COVID. And as a result of COVID, we have unemployment. I, I, I don't know the numbers. All right, do you have a mastermind for numbers? It's crazy amount of, it's crazy. Then... Um, people are running out of their savings. They've already run out and they're lost with that. Then kids can't go to school and parents are having to homeschool. So what's happening now is that domestic violence is on the increase. Mm -hmm. Because, and animal abuse, I'll say, because people are home and they're stressed out and they feel powerless and they can't change things and they don't know what to do. And we know that this is going to be a long, slow upswing. So then, um, did I forget anything here? Because then we throw in Mr. Floyd. And, and what happens is that as human beings, we can only tolerate so much. So we have what's called the somatic window of tolerance. You have one, I have one. Are you familiar with this concept? Yes. Of course you are. <laughs> and each one of us, based on our experience, has a different starting point each day. And during normal times, I kind of start down here. I wake up in the morning, I've got some stuff to do. But I'm cool and I go through my day and I might get, you know, get called into my boss's office and I get my, this is about your central nervous system and your central nervous system ability to regulate. Our job as humans is to stay regulated. Mm -hmm. So then I kind of calm down. My sweetheart calls me and then I'm driving and somebody flips me off and I get way up here. And the, the point is that for most of us, we go through our days and it may look like this a little bit, but we stay between the lines. And so these lines represent 
uh, fight, 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 flight, and freeze. So when we come out of this, this particular line and come up here, this is fight. And some people react by coming down here. I'm a fighter. I'm guessing you're a flighter. Is that right? I'm a freezer. A freezer. So this is it. Freeze or flight? I do flight too. I do flight. <laughs> get, get out of here. Mm -hmm. When I was done with the oppression, I put up a fight. There you <laughs> go, right? Always swings. <laughs> right. And, and, and unfortunately, this is, this is not what's happening for us right now. Unfortunately, right now, we've got our somatic window of tolerance. So, so this is what, what I can tolerate for me. And the, the, the interesting thing is each one of us has our own thing. You have a different somatic window of tolerance than me. You can tolerate some things that I can't. Hell, you had children. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I can tolerate some things that you can't. Um, and we're different in all kinds of ways. And then we're different. We have different somatic windows for different things. Like my somatic window of tolerance for talking about animal abuse, child abuse is very, very tiny, like this big. But my somatic window for talking about having lovely conversations about politics, it's big. And, and we're different in those ways. Mm -hmm. but, but what's happening today? And this is where people really aren't getting it. We're not waking up here. We're waking up here. We're waking up way up top. We've got COVID unemployment. People are run out of their savings. They have no idea how they're going to feed their children. We've got extreme fear and stress, a bunch of hopelessness. And then on top of all of that, we watch a police officer over eight minutes murder Mr. Floyd. Who taps really deeply into everyone's survival mechanisms. Right. Some for survival and some for deep hatred. It's really interesting depending on your experience. Right. True. So now in the morning, I'm waking up right about here. And I'm pretty good, man. I meditate. I read stuff. I take good care of myself. I eat good food. I get eight hours of sleep. Actually, I'm waking up at 4.30 in the morning with my brain going. So that's a, that's a, a different and new thing for me. So then what happens, Liz? I mean, I know you already know this answer. I start out here and my sweetheart says one little thing to me and I'm already up here. Yeah. Or the kid throws a sock on the ground. Or my boss asks me a simple question. Or there's no whatever at the market overflow because we're topped off we're completely unable we're full right and and what we call this in nonviolent communication is the difference between being resourced and not yeah and here's the key when you talk about how can we change things up here it is learning how to recognize and have emotional intelligence number one emotional intelligence is self-awareness and then is that right nope and then if i have self-awareness i can have self-regulation you can go on my website and look there's tons of books about this if people want to read uh, it's the work of daniel siegel it's brilliant work uh, so there's the there's five components of uh, emotional intelligence but i'm just talking about these first two which is, do I have the self-awareness to know that I'm resourced or I'm not resourced? So my kid throws a sock on the floor, and I recognize that in that instant, 
my somatic window of tolerance, I'm at a, I'm at a danger point. Mm -hmm. So what can I do now? I can stop. And I cannot say a word. And I can go take a walk or do whatever. But this is really, you know, what we're seeing is that people are walking around very unresourced. And so we're going to say and do things when we're unresourced that are really harmful. You know, the other question you asked is, how does the murder of Mr. Floyd happen? How do those things happen? Am I answering your questions? Yes. Thank you. So just basic neuroscience. And if you're a neuroscientist out there or a physician, please forgive me. Um, this is just a very layperson understanding. Um, but it's really a way that we can, you know, look at all of these pieces. So I'm born with all kinds of ideas about things. I shared about my experience of Mr. James and Dot, my father in the military, my religious upbringing, um, mental illness in my family, some beautiful things. My grandmother, Curry Lovely, um, that I was taught to love bugs early on, and now I'm a beekeeper. All of these things influence me. Uh, and who and who I am. I love nature. We lived in Iceland. I learned about nature, right? So our, our experiences impact who we are, and they become what we um, broadly call our, our biases, our biases towards or against something. Now, all of this is stored in a part of my brain that is called just generally my subconscious. And there's some million amounts, it's like if it's a computer, a million amounts of data that are going every single second. And NLP, you can look it up. It's a, it's a huge number. And there's so much going on here that actually the part of my brain that does critical thinking, we call the prefrontal cortex, can't keep up with this. It's too much. So this is always going on in the back of our brain. And... That, that part of our brain is ruled by one thing, um, one little piece of our brain, and you actually said it earlier. Do you remember? Amygdala. Mm -hmm. It's our amygdala. And, you know, the amygdala gets a bad name. So it's kind of like a little almond that's somewhere around here. Um, and this, this little piece, it, it's ruled by, really, it's a primal piece of our brain and it's got lots of primal kind of names. We've heard it called the caveman brain or the cavewoman brain or our primal brain or lizard brain or lots of those things. And its job, its job is to keep us alive. So it looks at all these different things and makes decisions for us about what they mean, what's the context. And then it informs this part of our brain but this part of our brain has reasoning. It's this part that sits right here. So Dan Siegel talks about it's, it's, like, a, it's like a fist. And so we've got this amygdala is tucked right in here. And this is our brain. And this, this, this is the part that we want to be thinking from. Emotionally intelligent people act from here. But what happens when we feel threatened? And what happened in this situation and every other situation that you can see on television right now, those two young people that are dragged out of their car and tasered, for God's sake, they did nothing. They did nothing but be stuck in traffic. Yeah. What happens? The amygdala sends out an alert and says, danger, 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 danger. And certain chemicals fly into our body. 
Uh, one of the big ones is adrenaline. If you want the science on this, you can go read all about it. It's everywhere. And this, this thing happens and it's called an amygdala hijack. It actually comes up and tells the prefrontal cortex, yeah, I know you got some good ideas about this, but right now I'm going to take over because we're going to die. Now, you can kind of see it in people. They get this glassed over look in their eyes and they're acting very mechanically and they're doing these things. We've seen it over and over and over again in the police videos that just keep coming out. And it's about fear. So what's the ultimate answer, Liz? It's that I have to take a deep dive down here and unpack what I learned and ask what contracts did I create when I was a child that black people are scary or black people are my friends? That men are scary or men are my friends? That LGBT people are scary or some of those in that or they're not my friends? Or Chinese people are my friends or they're not my friends? Or white men are my friends or no, they're scary? We made all kinds of contracts as children. They kept us alive. And what we're seeing right now is that those contracts are held by our amygdala. Our amygdala will take over our prefrontal cortex and we'll make bad decisions. And you have done it and I've done it, Liz, because we're human. We've experienced what's called an amygdala hijack. It happens to everybody. Most people say, I lost my shit yeah. or I lost my marbles. <laughs> I said or did something that I'm ashamed of or embarrassed of. I said something to someone I love that I feel really bad about. So this is the explanation for what happened. That that officer, I can't tell you what was in his mind, and the other officers, that their amygdala took over. And for some, it can be, it can be myriad reasons. Yeah. You know, people are like, well, they were afraid. Well, they might have been afraid for a lot of different reasons. They might have been afraid of the, the, the blue code right? Which is silence. Stand by and watch. Don't do anything. Mm. This, this needs to change. Spent most of my career talking about this. What's the saying in law enforcement? St uh, stitches, uh, snitches get stitches and wind up in ditches. It's a fear of if I stand up and speak up that I'll be harmed. Right. And those, those things have really happened. What else has to happen? People have to be taught what professional courage looks like. The other thing that has to happen when, uh, so I actually taught the carotid restraint, which is a chokehold, which is now up for debate everywhere. Um, and I don't want to talk about the goodness or badness of that. The, the important part of that is that when we taught the carotid restraint, Liz, we taught our officers how to stop another officer who had checked out and wasn't letting go. Does that make sense to you? Yes. And that's not happening in training. So people will go to the range, go to the range, go to the range, learn to shoot a gun, learn to shoot a gun, learn to shoot a gun, but we're not training people. How do I take a gun away from an officer who's lost their marbles? Right. How do I stop someone from choking someone out? How do I go up to it? And you know why those three people stood there? Because never once in their training did anyone say, go pick him off of him right now. Stop it. Make it stop. And in my training program, we did that. It's a really hard thing to do, though. And so just to take it a little bit deeper, the reason is because it comes down to I have to trust my fellow officer to have my back. I have to trust them with my life. And if I do something that threatens their livelihood where they might get in trouble, they might leave me out on the street or not stand up for me. Wow. 
So it's really this powerful survival mechanisms that we're seeing in place, primal brains all over the place. And so I don't know if this is helpful in explaining what, what happened with him. Um, what happened with Rodney King, they were all in their primal brains. They had all had uh, amygdala hijacks um, and they weren't present there. I'm going to share with you this story. I was working in a this probation department and there was this woman in my class and I talk about Rodney King as another really informed me. I remember watching Rodney King being beaten and thinking, how is this happening? And that's when I got interested in neuroscience. And I didn't say, I'd never do this, but let me, I said, under what conditions might I do something like this? And I want to understand, like, when might I do something horrible like this? Really looked at that. And the emotionally intelligent person doesn't say, I'll never do it. They say, what might trigger me so much that I might? But I was talking about Rodney King. This woman came up to me after class and she said, you know, I want to tell you the story about my dad. My dad worked for LAPD. And he never called in sick ever one day. Never, never. He went in no matter how, how bad he felt. And this one day he was so sick that he, he couldn't go out of the house. So he had diarrhea. He was vomiting. He was so sick. He had to stay home. And that was the day that the police officers beat Rodney King. And that night when they came home, he called them all in the living room and he showed them the news. And he said, that's my crew. I wasn't there today. I was homesick. Those are my boys. Those are my people. And he told his children, I'm not sure what I would have done. I've been sitting here all day thinking, what would I have done? All of them beat him. What might I have done had I not been at home? He quit the LAPD. They packed their house. And within a matter of days, they moved. And he started his life over again. Like, wow. So for us to just sit back through a lens and say all this high and mighty, I would never do this or that. I would hope I would never do anything horrific like that. But we've really looked at ourselves. And the truth is that most of us have done horrific things. We've said something that was so painful that we can't take it back. And it's only through this deep introspection, instead of pointing outwards at the other, and we look at, who do I want to be? How do I show up as a loving and kind human being? How do I learn about emotional intelligence? I've got all these books behind me. Anybody who wants to read them, please go to my website, islandconsultingandtraining.com. They're all on there in the resources page. And read about them. And for those of you who are suffering with anger or rage, it's a, a beautiful book here. <clears throat> about emotions and it actually explains what each emotion I can't see it I'm so sorry I'll pull it out of here what each emotion is telling us here it is the language of emotions and what is anger and why do we have anger what is it the language of emotions yeah the language of emotions it's it's an exquisite book and you fade out a little bit when you turn from your microphone it's an exquisite book and when we look at um, the piece about anger, it explains to us why anger happens and what actually it's, it's an emotion that informs us that something is very wrong. And when we know that, I invite you all to go buy this book right away and read it because we should be angry right now. 
it's not to not be angry. It's to be angry. And then what am I going to do with it? Am I going to do something that's pro-social and helpful? Or am I just going to rage and say ugly things? How am I going to handle that? So the amygdala in that part of our brain that really gets a bad rap, I want to tell you, Liz, it's benevolent. It really is a part of our brain that's trying to keep us alive. And when we take a deep dive into our own selves and start looking at our own stuff, then we can really begin to change what's happening here. That's beautiful, Jamie. Thank you so much for sharing that and walking us through it. What are some proactive steps each person can take to be an ally to those suffering right now? Mm. So an ally is someone that um, has my back, right? I know they have my back. And it's not enough to just theorize or talk about these things. Being an ally is is a verb. It's an action, an idea of action and me actually doing something that is proactive. Uh, so I think the best thing that we can do right now is to mind our speech, mind what we're posting to, to social media, to remember, uh, that people are people and individuals and not to put entire groups of people all into one little ball and have that be, this is what all blank fill in the blank people are. And, you know, I li- we live in a, on a liberal island, Liz. I mean, come on. You know, Vashon is a really liberal place. I'm and in the lucky bubble here. We're in the lucky bubble. And I hear people on our island bash white men. It's not okay. It's never okay to put a whole group of people in one circle because that's when they become the enemy, right? And yeah. then I can hurt them because they're different than me. So us learning and looking at, uh, why do I describe that person as my black friend, my lesbian friend, my single mom friend, my friend who um, had DV, my friend, right? We, like we, we do all of these things to categorize people and in that we dehumanize them. So for us to really switch this up and become allies, we have to be willing as much as we can to understand what's happening inside of our friends And then speak for, speak with, say something and do something. I'm going to give you a personal example, which doesn't have to do with um, black lives, but is very personal to me. Uh, They had some anti, well, it does have to do with black lives. They had uh, Cory Booker and uh, Kamala Harris put some legislation forward about lynching. I don't know if you saw this. It's anti-lynching legislation. No, I didn't see that. And... Lynching for anyone, especially from the South, is this very potent, horrific. Um, you can just pretty much say to an African American, you can say to an African American, anyone from the South, lynching, and we all do this. Yeah, your body tenses up. Such a threat. So good for Booker and Miss um, Harris, and they put this legislation forward. So um, I, I'm going to mess up his name. He's. Um, Paul Rand, the guy who ran for president, his son. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that him? Paul Rand. The guy, you know who I'm talking about. Rand Paul. Rand Paul. Yes. Anyway, that guy. 
he actually protested it. And I invite people to go and look because what he was saying was very interesting. He was saying that he wanted it to be more specific and there need to be specific things that happen to someone who's lynched. Now, a lynching is quite simple. You put a rope around someone's neck and you hang them. It's not complicated. And he brought up this case of this horrific thing, which I'm not going to say because we've already, already all, all of us are suffering from vicarious trauma, like watching all of this stuff. So I'm going to spare you the details, but he tells this horrible story and he says, you should have to meet these criteria. And so Kamal Harris and um, Cory Booker both are ballistic. They come out and they're like, are you kidding me? It's uh, a lynching is a lynching. And you don't need to lecture us about this case. We know that case. It brings terror in any African-American in the country. That's why we put this legislation forward. Now, it's interesting because he brought up, one person is holding up this legislation. It's him. And he brought it up on the day of Mr. Floyd's funeral. Wow. What a message to send. So I was watching this with great interest and I try to keep myself up to date super interesting, you know, like, wow, this is really something here. And then one of my friends sent me this thing from Facebook and said, did you see this, Jamie? And I'm on the LGBTQIAS2 spectrum. It's a big one in a couple of different places. And it was a picture of this hate group that said, we're okay with the the anti-lynching legislation, but we do not want to include LGBT people. I cannot tell you the effect that that had and who called me, but my same friend that I called and said, I just saw this and I'm calling you. I'm picking up the phone right now. And I sobbed because we're reminded that here, here we are in the face of all of this stuff. And, you know, for each different group of people, there's some fear. But I'm also reminded that no more, I can still fake it. I could grow my hair out. I could do some different things. I could wear makeup again. I could do all of those things, but, and walk safely in the world. But my black and brown friends, they can't. So what's being an ally? My friend was being an ally, but more than just calling me and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, Jamie. She said, I am going to take this to my congregation and we are going to talk about what the meaning of Christianity is because this group is claiming to be Christian. That's being an ally. It's a verb. It's taking direct action. It's having crucial and critical conversations. And I felt supported and loved and cared about because she actually was doing something. Did I answer your question about the ally piece? Yes. Thank you so much. And I am, I am, I am, I am, yeah, and I, I mean, I'm your ally. I talk about, you know, if you hear in my language, you know, single moms, it's about inclusion, including people, yeah. making sure that everybody gets to be a part of the community. And if people want to know more about being an ally, um, please go look up what it means uh, and see how, and ask yourself the simple question, how could I be an ally to one friend that I have? Most people won't do it because they think, what if my friend says something to me that's mean? It's National Take a Risk Day. Yeah. It's time for us to take risks. Get out there. Take risks. Yeah. Ugh. yeah. I'm going to move on to, and it's along the same lines, but standing up. And um, 
something I'm going to share, probably going to get emotional. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> a best friend of mine in fifth grade, um, young black male, also homosexual. His parents at the end of fifth grade decided to move to the city so he would have a better chance to have a better life. And I always reflect back on him when I think about standing up for people. So how do we stand up for people with less power? And I'm all about empowering people. How do we, what can we do to empower our black brothers, sisters, and cousins? Yeah, it's a, it's really a touching story. So I just want to acknowledge the beauty of that story, Liz. And what I hear you saying is his parents were his allies. Is that yeah. right? Did I get that his right? His parents were his allies. Yeah, wow. It's amazing. Yeah. I forgot your question now because I was feeling it for this guy. How I know. Cool. Let's see. Take a deep breath. Standing up for people with less power. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to come back again around to the thing I said earlier, which was when we see something happening, say something. We don't have to get all crazy, but don't look to the person who is the oppressed person with no power and say, what are you going to do about that black man? What are you going to do about that lesbian? What are you going to do about that single mom? What are you going to do about that thing? What, what is it that you're going to do? And, and, and usually for us, it's around microaggressions. So I think I probably, I know you know what microaggressions are, but should I explain? A little? explain yeah. um, it's just little stuff that people do that is aggressive and it's not about equality and me being equal with you. We, in NBC, they talk about power up, power down, one up, one down. Emotionally intelligent people understand the power that they have. And we are aware of how do I do these things. So I'm really tall. Um, and so one of the things I do in one up, one down, power up, power down to recognize that is if I'm with someone who is a little bit shorter in stature, I'll sit down. I don't say anything about it. I just sit or I'll lean against something to make myself shorter. I don't just tower over them. Um, if it's uh, someone that, uh, well, here's a good example. I have a friend who um, lives in the Bay Area and she's deaf. So we went into a restaurant once and the woman was talking to her while my friend was reading the menu. So of course she didn't hear the woman talking. And so the woman wasn't being rude or anything. She's perfectly lovely. But I stepped in and said, she can't hear you. She's reading the menu. Give her just a moment. My friend reads uh, lips beautifully and can speak for herself. So part of that too is knowing where do we step in and where don't we? So it was just about awareness. And then my friend looked down and said, you know, I'll have the whatever. That's being an ally is I'm paying attention to what's happening for her because she can't, she can't hear. Um, and so she's such a great person. Oh my gosh. So uh, being an ally means that I'm actually not in the conversation thinking about myself and when I'm with somebody, I'm looking at the world. I'm paying attention to what's actually happening and what's going on. So microaggressions are usually, they're, they're small things, and people feel so uncomfortable with them, so they won't say anything. And then that leaves the person who has had the microaggression directed at them feeling powerless and, and hopeless. Because now not only did it happen, but you're not going to mention 
So it's like, oh, let's pretend like that didn't, that thing didn't just happen. I'm going to give you a great example the other day of um, some microaggressions that happened. And I was laughingly playing with them because I could, but I was wanting to do this project at my house and I had some people come and give me a bid. And there's a, a hill where I was talking to this, this man in the back. So here's kind of how it looks and how we see it. I had told all the people who were going to come bid on this job, please wear a mask. So he gets out of his car without a mask. And I said, I'm sorry, sir, you can't come on the property without a mask. And he says, I don't have one. And I said, I'm sorry, sir, then I don't want your bid. With all due respect. He says, well, my wife has one in the car. I'll go get hers. I said, great. So he comes over. He's obviously mad about that. So here's the microaggression. I'm not going to respect what you are. And I'm going to be angry at you on your property for asking me to respect your rules. Do you get it? Yeah. So then he comes into the backyard and he's looking around and he stands up higher than me. He's big old, like six foot four guy. So I know about microaggressions. So now I'm just messing with him. So I move up where I'm level with him and I can see him. He actually moves back up the hill. The thing about this, Liz, is that it's completely unconscious. He has no idea he's doing this at all. So then he steps into my personal space. Now he's towering over me. I'm down the hill, right? And he says to me, I've heard what you want for your project. Now let me tell you what you should do. Wow. So now you're going to mansplain to me too. So he t- I said, oh, how interesting. Why don't you tell me what you would do? After I had specifically said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. This is my budget, so I don't want to talk about that part. I know you look at it and you say you should do this, but I don't want to do that. So let's just leave that one alone. He had to explain it to me. So then he hands me his card. I walked around again and stood up higher than him one more time. And he walked all the way up and had to stand on top of my deck to talk to me, to hand me his card and said, I'm sure you'll make the right choice in who you choose for this job. It's like straight up yuck, clueless guy. And clearly that's worked for him for a lot of years. Now here's the juxtaposition. And nobody call me and say, which company was that? And it was an off-island company. Another guy comes, he's an on-island company. And he says, tell me your vision. So I tell him my vision. And he's like standing there and he's like with me. And I started moving, doing the same things. He kept himself with me. He's following me around. Like this dude is hip. He was so cool. And he says, I have some ideas. Are you open to that? And I said, sure, I'm open to that. And he says, okay, check it out. We could do this. And if, what if you did this? And I really heard you say you're on a budget. So what if we did this? It was beautiful. It was like teamwork. He was my, he was my ally in that moment. But let's think about for a moment. It's not me who has tremendous personal power, who is, you know, a person who's so trained I'm not afraid of Mr. Big Six Foot Four Man. He can't really hurt me. (laughs) There's nothing he can do. Think about if I am a person of color and this man is doing the same thing. What do we do? And and so your question was, how do I be an ally? How do I actively, what do I actively do? So I would actually do something to reposition us in that situation. So a lot of times what will happen is the white person will talk to the white person and exclude the other person or children completely. Talk about that. You want to be an ally of children? My child's here too. What did you say, Jimmy? Oh, that's a great idea, honey. Right? So it's about including everybody there and treating everybody as equal. 
in the environment. And, and we have to do that. So it's not about like, hey, you're ignoring my friend. Don't be a jerk. It's not that. It's that I'll step back and say, what do you think, Mary? I'm curious. And then if the person continues to talk to me, say, I'm really curious about what Mary has to say, right? There's ways to do this that is gentle and kind. And, and so in those ways, when we start to train ourselves, it's really a matter of training, Liz. I start to train myself to pay attention to the environment and what's happening for other people. And you're, you're so empathetic. I know you're always feeling that. But this piece of it's just not all about me. I'm going to tell you one more scene that happened yesterday on the island. I don't know if you saw this, but there's a big giant um, camper for sale um, down by the, yep. where you turned to go yep. high school. Yep. So I pulled over, I had my mask on and I'm looking at it. And I'm like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Let me go look at it. And so this guy pulls up really nice man. And he says, I mean, I know who he is. I'm just not saying his name. He says, Hey, do you want to look at it? I said, totally want to look at it. That's so cool. He goes, I just happen to have the key. I'm his friend. <laughs> he opens up the camper, you know, so bash on. And he's great. He stands outside. He lets me go in. I have my mask on. I'm looking around. I'm looking at everything. He's so respectful, this man. And all of a sudden, this dude just comes charging into the camper. And I look at him, and I've got a mask on. Now, I've already had COVID. I really don't want it again, and I have asthma. I don't know who this man is. And he walks into a camper, and he just passed me, goes and looks at the, the little bedroom. We're in a camper. And I just looked at him, and I said, excuse me, sir. And he says, what? And I said, I have a mask on. It's the law, actually. And you don't. And we're not six feet apart. And I'm looking at the camper. Would, how would you feel about waiting outside for like another five minutes? Let me take a look. It would be great. And he's livid. I can just, his face just goes bright red. And he goes, oh, so sorry. And walks out, right? And these aren't even microaggressions. That's just like aggression, aggression. And I don't think he meant it. I think the dude was clueless and he has no clue. But here's the thing about us white folks, Liz. We don't get to be clueless anymore. No. We don't get to walk around and push people out of the way anymore because we're not paying attention. We don't get to do stuff like that. We have to stop and think about the effect of our actions and what are we doing. I've done it. I'm aware of the times I've done it. And I'm mortified. But I learned and I did something different. So how do we change these things? We start looking at ourselves. What are we teaching our children? Do we stand out of the way for the little old lady in the little grocery store? Do, do, do we make a smart-ass comment about something? I mean, what do, what do we do? When one of my friends said, I don't like Black Lives Matters, I say, that's so interesting. Would you like to have a conversation about that instead of just skirting past it? Right. And then today, when I put on my Black Lives Matter shirt, I took a picture of it, so say their name. It's right under here. It's kind of like my Superman shirt. There it is. Okay. I say, say their name. And I called her up and sent her a picture of my shirt. And I said, this really matters to me. Would you be willing to have that conversation? That's being an ally. Yeah. Not letting all this little stuff just slide by. No matter what it is. But right now, it's about black lives. Beautiful, Jamie. We're coming to the end of our show. What would you like to leave our listeners with, Jamie? Oh, God, so funny. John Lennon just came in my head. I didn't even like John Lennon at the time. <laughs> Isn't it funny? Like, all we need is love just popped in my head. Um, I think it's our ability. The rocks have been thrown out of the bucket into the air. 
the COVID rocks, the riot rocks, the protest rocks, the unemployment rocks, all of it is in the air. And for us to recognize it, I don't know where they're going to land and I can't know. So for all the people who are trying to control their environment by getting really constricted and, and really trying to regulate things by getting more rule bound and less love bound, I want to invite you to take a deep breath. It's going to be a long ride for us. This is going to be a long ride. And I've just signed on. Get on the bus and I'm going to help. I'm going to do what I can do and try to stay as open and loving and kind while speaking the truth and standing up, recognizing what power I have. You know, I know we're at the end of our time, but it's complicated, Liz, because, you know, in some ways you have more power than me because of your, uh, you know, the way that you identify in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um where you'll have more power than me, but in those other ways that I'll have more power than you. So recognizing in those moments that ebb and flow of what's true and where am I the person? So on our island, I have a lot of power. In my work, I have a lot of power. But in my man suit, in certain counties in California, when I walk around, it's scary to me. So I need an ally at those times, and I need to be an ally and when we can show up for each other that way, it, it can be really beautiful. So slowing our role. And the biggest piece is if you have a friend who is African-American, I guarantee you they're suffering right now. And they may not want to talk to you. And if you're a person who wants to give advice or fix stuff, don't take, don't do this. But if you can listen empathically, it's right behind me. What I heard you say was that you're feeling really lonely, hurt, and sad. Did I get that right? Yeah. Is there more? Tell me about that. My heart's broken with what I've seen. I feel hopeless. Wow, you feel hopeless. My gosh. No, go study reflective listening. Take a class. Learn how to listen and be there and don't fix it. Don't make it okay. Pick up a Brene Brown book. Read about that. She talks all about empathy, what it really looks like. And show up. And I'm not willing to march, um, but I am willing to. Today I did five things. So I'm trying to do five things every day, Liz that are verbs. Um, so I wrote to a, a department today um, where they're not taking action or making a statement and said to them, I'm, it, very lovingly, I'm noticing that you haven't said anything and I'm wondering if you would like some help with that. I'm happy to help with that. Um, I developed 21 little mini courses today for, um, um, that are around all these topics that we've talked about today. I uh, created my own diversity statement for my law enforcement business and uh, placed it uh, on my web. should be up when I get out of this call. It should be up there. I had to have it edited. I'm not the best speller. I have a good team around me, and we created a diversity statement and got that up, and then we sent it out uh, to over 85 departments and said, this is what we stand for awesome. in our training. So, you know, what are five things that you could do? And you, the big you. That's really the answer every day to be proactive, speaking love to love, speaking kindness to kindness, and speaking peace to peace, recognizing when someone here is actually a kind person, not putting them on blast. But for God's sakes, don't remain silent in the face of what's happening right now. Don't allow that dinnertime yucky conversation. When your friends say yucky stuff, call them on it. Ask them to be kind. 
Wow, that didn't feel so good. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to have a do-over and try that one again. Are you aware of what actually happened to Mr. Floyd? I've watched the video. It's excruciating. It was a murder. You know, like, this is the way that we think about Sandra Bland, all these, you know, names that I have here on my shirt. You know, I'm going to keep a G for you. But, you know, these people mattered. Their lives mattered. And they were all murdered. And we just can't be denying that anymore and have a healthy world and live in a healthy world where people feel supported and loved and cared for. So I hope I answered your question. That was beautiful, Jamie. Thank you so much. Yeah. One last question. How can people get a hold of you if they need to? Um, they, so if you're a law enforcement organization, I work with 10,000 law enforcement professionals a year and I have, uh, Liz just got to see my new command center here, which is really beautiful. Uh, we've done uh, about 16 online courses. It's really awesome. And um, so I've got that going on. We have classes that are happening, lots of trauma-informed care stuff, lots of stuff. So that is islandconsultingandtraining.com, islandconsultingandtraining.com, very simple. The uh, other business I have is a personal business where I work with individuals and do um, take deep dives into their trauma work, uh, looking at how to create a better life, a life that they would love living. And I'm living a life I love living. So I have some ideas about how that can happen. Uh, so that business, uh, you can reach me at Jamie Wolf at Tribe 525. So that's Jamie Wolf at Tribe 525. And thanks for uh, that little shout out there. I appreciate that, Liz. And thank you so much for all that you do for our community, all these beautiful videos. I've watched so many of them and bringing people out and talking about what they do. You're just such a rock star. Thanks, Jamie. I appreciate that. Yeah. That's you. Yep, you too. And thank you for joining me, everyone. This is Liz Peterson on Raise the Vibe with Liz. I hope you have a great day. And remember to get out there and raise the vibe. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's show on Raise the Vibe with Liz. If you like this content and want to support me, please go to Patreon at Raise the Vibe with Liz or click the link in the description of this show. And remember, change starts with you. So get out there and raise the vibe. Thank you, everyone.